within the water industry, at least, we say water is the new gold, I guess, the new oil, because it's something that's, it's going to become even more precious. Educate yourself on what your bill is actually paying towards. We do all of these things kind of just, you know, blindly or just, I guess, on auto mode because we have too many other things to worry about. But water, I believe, is something that we should be worrying about. My policy is if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Welcome to Wannabe Greener, the podcast exploring sustainable living for everyone on Earth. I'm your host, Harriet Robinson, and I first recorded this interview in New Zealand at the end of summer where there'd been a record drought in the north of the country and water shortages that lasted far too long. I've recently moved back to the UK thinking we don't have the same problem here, but I now know that countries all over the world are facing unprecedented water crises. And you wouldn't think that a nation known for its rain and its rivers, like Britain, for example, would be at risk. But the head of the Environment Agency believes England won't have enough fresh water to meet demand in just 25 years. In fact, Bloomberg has listed at least 17 nations, mostly in the Middle East, that are currently on the verge of a water crisis. It's not just complete shortages, but access to clean, safe water is also a huge problem. And not just in developing countries, but even in America, where it disproportionately affects people of colour. You know, learning that 2.2 million people in the U.S. don't have access to clean drinking water and sanitation services. And majority of those people are actually tribal communities. That was something that was really shocking to the water industry as a whole, because that's what our society has done. Sapna Mulkey is a podcast host and founder of Water Savvy Solutions. It's a US-based consulting business which helps communicate water issues to the wider community, spreading awareness of the importance of investing in infrastructure and improving policy to protect the country's supply, amongst a bunch of other clever stuff. We have a massive financial deficit when it comes to investing in our water and wastewater infrastructure. We need our policymakers to take it more seriously I found this really interesting because I have to admit, I don't really think about water too much. It's kind of always there. It comes out the tap. There seem to be full rivers everywhere I look. But obviously, it's not quite as simple as that. Basically, we don't think enough about it. And Sapna is helping to change that. In this conversation, we talk about Sapna's upbringing in Kenya and how differently she finds people treat water around the world and what we as individuals can do to reduce our water use and stop wasting it. If we turn off the tap while we're brushing or shaving, then that alone can save 200 gallons of water per month. We also cover why options like using seawater are not viable, the importance of paying for water and what changes policymakers need to urgently make. Our systems are still like 100 years old. They weren't built for what's happening to us today. It's high time that we just completely revamped our entire systems. If you listen to other Green podcasts, you might recognise Sapna's name or voice because I first found out about her as the host of Breaking Green Ceilings, which in her words is an intersectional podcast amplifying voices of environmentalists from marginalised communities. So basically, those people you don't often hear being given a platform to talk about the environment, despite the huge efforts they're often making to bring about change, from reclaiming Indigenous rights to making the outdoors physically accessible. There are some super super insightful and interesting episodes there. I really recommend that you go and take a listen to. So before we got talking about water, Sapna told me a bit more about her inspiration for the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm I'm honoured and humbled and uh, very grateful. So I started Breaking Green Ceilings because... I am an environmentalist by training and most of my work experiences have been 
in, in the U.S. primarily. And through my work experiences, I often felt like the only one of my kind in the room, whether it was just racially or gender-wise or even just in perspective. And I basically went through my entire profession feeling quite isolated and, and lonely many times. And I think it's just... Uh, recently, or two and a half years ago, when I decided to start my business, I I felt I was at this point in my life where I didn't have to answer to anyone except for myself. But it also then gave me the freedom to explore a community that I always kind of wanted to have. So selfishly, I created this podcast to to find that community, but also because from my own experiences in mainstream environmental organizations, it was really hard to see the impact that people of color were were making in that space. But I knew that they were there. So it was just an effort on my side to try and find those people and create a place or a platform where they could tell their stories and their own and, and tell their own truth really. You found some amazing guests as well. How have you come across all of these people? Oh, gosh, it's just uh, <laughs> many rabbit holes in the internet. <laughs> uh, some of them I have found through um, just going to conferences. Others I found through simply just Googling environmentalists of color. There aren't very many organizations that cater to that group of people. And then also some of my um, professional and personal contacts, in particular, my uh, my former mentor from my environmental studies program, Dr. Alison Ormsby, she has been a huge advocate for the podcast and she has a huge network of U.S. and international folks uh, within the environmental community. So she's always sending me great suggestions of uh, people that I can interview. And then it's just also you know, a lot of research on my end on various issues and then finding out who are the experts uh, who are leading up such specific issues, really, uh, and then reaching out to them. And so far, people have been very welcoming and willing to, to hear me out. And I, I feel I'm not taking that for granted and feel really uh, lucky. Mm -hmm. Congrats. It's a, it's a great podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And I guess it, it kind of will feed maybe a little bit into our conversation today. But you talked about there that you started your own business, Water Savvy Solutions. You live in the States at the moment, don't you? So is it kind of a, a quite new company? Yeah. So I started the business because I wanted to explore several passion projects, <laughs> including creating a space for myself in the water industry. I strongly believe in the value of developing or implementing intentional and behavior changing water education campaigns. And so the consulting business was an opportunity for me to explore that. I also started it because of other personal reasons is I just didn't want to be answerable to another person or another entity's agenda. I just wanted to be answerable to myself. Fair enough. Um, and then also, I think, uh, based on my experiences on the various organizations I worked with, it was different to find a place where I could be more intersectional in my approach. So I was able to do that more or explore that with my consulting practice. So I've worked with public and private water, wastewater utilities on very traditional, typical kind of outreach campaigns. And then I've also worked with nonprofits to develop their water leadership programs. And that just really speaks to, I guess, the diversity of experiences that I've had. I wouldn't say that I'm a typical environmental professional. I've just worked in in various spaces and on various issues from great ape conservation to Everglades restoration and uh, water policy 
curriculum development for our high school kids. So I wanted to bring all of that into my business. And I feel like I've been able to do a little bit of that. Cool. So why water? Why did water feel like the the important thing to be talking about and to be getting people to to understand the value of more than any, anything else? Well, I think it just really starts from my own personal experiences of growing up in Kenya. We had to conserve a lot of our resources growing up, especially water. And in our neighborhood, we often had uh, water shortages. For example, we would only be able to get water maybe like five hours in a day. And just the experience of filling up jerry cans of water, um, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning or even having conversations with friends who lived in wealthier parts of the city, asking them like, hey, do you all have water? And if you do, can we drive over 30 minutes to collect some water? And I think like our family was in a was in a, in a little bit of a better situation. Eventually, we were able to build a borehole well, and that kind of helped get us continuous water flowing. But also living in Nairobi, you can't avoid seeing the poverty and, and really wondering how it impacts those below the those who live in, in poverty, rather. I also just experienced our rivers being heavily polluted and that really disturbed me. I felt like if this was our source of water, drinking water, then we had to do a better job of protecting it. And so it was this, I guess, confluence point between poverty and access to water. So I decided that I wanted to work primarily in international development and work with marginalized communities to create access to drinking water through alternative financing models, where we would create the access to the infrastructure and empower the communities to manage that infrastructure um, and to manage the resource and the quality of the resource. But after working in international development for a couple of years, I was kind of disenfranchised by that community. And so I I decided to then just focus more on U.S. water issues. And I think it was just also out of, uh, to a certain extent, a necessity for stability, because I didn't really see much of opportunities in, in Kenya. So that's how I kind of then started focusing more on water, U.S. water issues. I was thinking it, it must have been quite shocking to move from where you were and, and knowing you had to conserve so much water to moving to America and seeing what I assume people waste water a lot more where, where you live now. Is that the case? Did it feel like a bit of a, a shock? I guess it was to a certain extent. I remember there were just some very, I don't know if that was strange, but... Uh, so, for example, when I first came to the U.S. Um, for college and we used to have shared, I guess, shower stalls or whatever. And my roommate at that time, sometimes we would take showers and like stalls next to each other because they weren't, I think they were just three stalls or whatever. And mm. so once my roommate asked me, she's like, hey, Sabno, do you turn off the shower when you're like you know, lathering up. I was like, yeah, what else do you do? Like you save water that way, right? And she's <laughs> like, oh, that's so strange. Uh, and that's when I realized that some of the habits that we had to conserve out of necessity weren't necessarily the habits that at least my roommate had. Or th then I started noticing that other people in my, in my dorm weren't really necessarily, you know, turning off the shower when they were lathering up or whatever. Oh, the other thing is it was really strange for me to use a shower <laughs> the first time oh, really? because in Kenya, we use the the bucket, a uh, little bucket, and we, we have the water in a bucket. So <laughs> I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that or if you know about like the, the bucket bathing system where you just fill. No, explain. 
<laughs> so we, we don't necessarily have showers. Well, like at least when I was growing up in Nairobi, we didn't have showers. So you would typically, first of all, like there wasn't enough pressure and then there wasn't enough water. So you would have to fill a bucket of water and each person would get one bucket of water to bathe with. And so that's how you ensured that we weren't running through the water in the, the tank sooner than we needed. But yeah, it's just like a very efficient system of one bucket of water and you have a little tiny bucket and you just kind of pour the water in yourself and then you soap up and then do whatever scrub dub you need to. And then you just, you know, use a little <laughs> bucket again and just pour the water. <laughs> nice. I can't imagine it being as satisfying in the winter in the UK, maybe, or in New Zealand to have a bucket of water, but... <laughs> you know necessary I mean maybe. It, it definitely isn't convenient because I we still do that at home in Nairobi and so when I was visiting in December I was just like man I really miss showers because <laughs> you do get cold in between <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um so you're now living in America mm -hmm. and you're running your business and, and your business focuses on the American water issues what are the issues there what what is wrong with the system because maybe we've all heard about problems in African countries with droughts or with a shortage of water maybe we don't realize that there's it, it's actually a problem in countries like America as well yeah there were impacted by severe droughts when I lived in Texas uh, back in 2011 we were experiencing one of the most severe actually the most severe drought of record uh, around that time California was as well some cities had to truck in water all of our state policymakers were talking about how we needed to find other innovative ways to create uh, conserve drinking water we considered you know groundwater desalination, seawater desalination, at least in Texas. But once we got rain, we just kind of stopped talking about the importance of why we needed to take a multi-pronged approach to managing our water. But really in the U.S., it just depends on which part of the country you're in. So if you're in you know, the Midwestern, Northeastern states where it's water abundant, you tend to have more water quality issues, whereas as it associates with pollution, algal blooms, if you're in Florida or in like low-lying states, then you have to worry about saltwater intrusion. If you're in Texas and mid South Midwestern states, then you have to worry about supply because of severe droughts. And a lot of like these you know, standard type of water problems are further intensified by, by climate change. So we're seeing more severe and frequent droughts, and we're seeing the same also with flooding. So those are some of the, the problems. We also do have a massive kind of deficit in our infrastructure financing much of our infrastructure are those pipes, our major pipes were laid down in the early mid to 20th century. And they have a lifespan of 75 to 100 years. And we're at that point where it's 75 to 100 years. And so we're just experiencing this aging infrastructure starting to, you know, live out its lifetime. And this infrastructure is very expensive and so the other problem is that in the U.S., we we don't pay for the true price of water. Water is undervalued. And so, you know, our utilities are ensuring that our water is up to EPA standards and it's good quality. But we're always we're struggling a lot with replacing the old infrastructure because it's expensive and fixing leaks we have an association here called the American Water Works Association, and that's sort of like this umbrella association. It's nonprofit, not really related to the government. In one of their reports, they say that we will need at least a trillion dollars to replace and repair our drinking water infrastructure over the next 25 years. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's a lot. And that's just drinking water. With wastewater, we have fewer wastewater facilities. 
but with our population increasing to, you know, up to 56 million people in the next 20 years, we're going to need 271 billion for just the wastewater side. So there's a huge gap that we need to fill financially in terms of ensuring that we're able to continue delivering clean drinking water to our people and to also enable them to flush their toilets whenever they need to. Yeah, right. So obviously, that's a job for the government and big corporations or water companies. Is there something that we as individuals can do about that, though? I mean, obviously, you said about kind of your roommates having long showers and stuff like that. Is it also down to us, you know, to to put a bit more value on on the water that we use? Yeah, I think it definitely does come down to us. And I'll say it because for I mean, just just note that I may be biased because that's what my business is about. Um, But I really do believe in the value of not only educating, but changing behavior of how people interact with their drinking water and also with how they think about their wastewater. So, you know, at an individual level, we can do simple things like installing energy and water efficient appliances, faucets, toilets, and shower heads. And many utilities and cities around, like at least the bigger ones, mid-sized to bigger utilities have implemented some programs to what we call rebate programs to help switch out some of those old appliances, faucets, etc. And then in terms of what else we can do. I think it's really one of the things that we struggle with in the water industry is getting people to pay for water. People think that just because water is a basic right that they shouldn't pay for it, but they don't realize that they're actually paying for the delivery and the treatment of that water. And it requires massive infrastructure, systems, chemicals, expertise, personnel, staff. Like it takes a lot of people to ensure that that water flows through their faucets when they turn it on. And so what I try to do is educate folks on the importance of knowing where their water comes from why it's important for today and for next generations, and also providing that information in such a way that it empowers them to not only understand what they're paying for when they get their bills, but also to have educated conversations with their city leaders on the importance of financing, increasing financing of water, wastewater infrastructure you know, a part of it is also just educating yourself. And I know that here in the US, we're spoiled because we don't, we don't have to think about water, we just turn on the faucet, it's there. And the industry has done a great job of this. But, you know, the opposite effect is that people take it for granted. And so we don't feel like we need to, I guess, to to add this on our list of things to educate ourselves about. Um, or that we need to advocate for it, essentially. Yeah, I think that's a problem because we, yeah, like you said, you know, we turn on the tap and water's there. And also you see it everywhere, you know, you see rivers and you see the sea and it's kind of a thing that you you just see water. So it seems like we've got this abundance of of this resource, whereas other problems, environmental problems, are a bit easier to see when you see kind of plastic littering the floor or something like here in Wellington we currently don't have water issues but in Auckland they they do they've had a drought and they've all had to kind of have short showers and not use a hose pipe and do all these these kind of things because it's got to the point where they're like we we have no water left but it was it wasn't until it hit crisis point that people were like we better we better start uh, reducing our water and so how do you then persuade people to put more of a value on it? People are going to react to a crisis, obviously, especially when it depends on their very existence. You know, studies have shown that people revert to their old habits once the water does become available. How we get them to care or value water is to constantly 
educate them about the importance of water and how it is really an integral part of their well-being. We wouldn't have our homes, our economies, our lifestyles without water. And I think that's where, you know, the persuasive messaging comes about. Having just, you know, uh, these generic images of water is life and then it's a droplet smiling, like that's not going to get people to see the value of water. So the approach that I try to take is really understanding the values of a community. And I do that by using social science research methods, such as surveying, focus groups, and through gathering that quantitative and qualitative data, I'm able to understand what is the baseline knowledge that people have around water issues. Something as simple as, do you know where you get your water from? Do you know what storm water is? To what are your values as a person? Like, what's the most important thing to you? Is it family? Is it you having access to parks or whatever it may be? And then what are your political inclinations? Another aspect that we look at is identifying our target audiences based on demographics. So you develop messaging based on that. But the idea at the end of the day is to make the resource tangible and connect to their everyday life, to make something that seems very regular to them as actually a massive task that they're able to do it because of water. You know, for example, being able to raise their child, a healthy child, and that comes about from having access to clean drinking water, for example. And and I guess, you know, there's people who are living in cities who are wealthy, it doesn't maybe doesn't really affect them. It's actually affecting, for example, indigenous communities, I would say in America it would affect. I know in New Zealand here it does affect as well water issues do. Why is that? And how do we get people to realise that or, or understand that? So here in the US, we're already such a hyper-localised community and we have been kind of wired to think very locally and just about us and as individuals and about our families. And that's it. And also because like historically, we've we felt that you know, the world revolves around the US, so everyone needs to learn about us and we don't need to learn about other folks, which is just like, you know, this kind of egocentric way of thinking. So then, you know, with indigenous communities, with Native American communities, we we don't necessarily see that because the way this country has treated Native Americans is we've created these reservations to keep them over there where we don't need to see them. We've excluded them. And so we've therefore excluded their their needs as a process. Even for me, having, you know, learning that 2.2 million people in the U.S. don't have access to clean drinking water and sanitation services, and majority of those people are actually tribal communities, that was something that was really shocking to the water industry as a whole because that's what our society has done is it's it's physically excluded tribal communities so we haven't had to think about their water needs essentially and that's what we do with black and brown communities as well they're not integrated into like a greater like if you look at our urban designs they're over there, right next to, you know, the harmful industrial complexes. They're in these neighborhoods that are either they're like within the city where nobody goes, for example, like Detroit, or they're just really far away from the rest of the community. So our communities are designed in such a way where we don't have to see the suffering of those folks. So we don't know that they're even suffering. And even if we do, then because as I mentioned, we're just so hyper-local in our thinking. It's going to take us a lot more effort to care about those issues. And I think with the murder of George Floyd and others like him and, and women, uh, African-American women and queer and trans, of course, I think it brought to light our connection to each other in a sense. But I don't know how long that's that's going to last. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wonder if it's going to be kind of a, a bit of a phase or whether the, this kind of community, not even community spirit, but support will will continue. Mm-hmm. What needs to change then? I mean, does it feel like where you are, there are any policies that will make access to water better, that will give more people access to clean water, or are there some huge issues that really need to be changed ASAP? Well, from a... Uh... From a macro perspective, as far as water policy and management goes, that has been neglected for a long time, are two primary or pivotal water policies, the Clean Water Act of 1972, that regulates pollutant discharges into water, and then the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974, which was established to protect the quality of drinking water in the U.S., those were implemented 40 years ago. Since then, we haven't really had any other significant water policies that address all the changes that have occurred in our natural environment in the past four decades. So I think from my perspective, at least, we it's important that we need to start considering the the chemical contaminants in in our water. We found over a hundred thousand chemical contaminants from pharmaceuticals and from industries. And the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which regulates these contaminants, they only regulate ninety one of those chemicals. So it's a huge concern to think what the impact of those other tens of thousands of chemicals are having on our bodies, having impact on women who are pregnant, on older people, on the development of children. And I think it's just high time that we updated those policies, enacted more stringent policies to ensure that these chemicals are contained. We know the extent to the impact of those chemicals. And we're also regulating the industries that are just dumping these chemicals into our water. So that's one thing is we need a significant update or like a new water policy that can be added to the Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act. The other thing is that, like I mentioned, we have a massive financial deficit when it comes to investing in our water and wastewater infrastructure. We need our policymakers to take it more seriously that typically water and wastewater utilities get their funding from ratepayers or water customers. There's only so much money people have, especially if we need a trillion dollars in the next 25 years. Mm. Imagine the burden that we would be putting on people, especially during such times. And we know that the impact of the pandemic and the recession are going to continue for several years. So it's unfair that they're placing this burden on on ratepayers. And I did say that we need to pay the true cost of water, and I believe that. But I'm just worried that low-income families, black, brown, white, indigenous communities are going to take a brunt of that. And, you know, along with the financing or responsible financing of water infrastructure, I really think that we need to put into place cushions to help marginalized communities so that they aren't carrying this this burden of having to pay their water bills along with other medical bills and school bills. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. And so we need to design our rate structures. And I guess that's more for local level. But On a bigger scale, given that we need, you know, a trillion dollars for drinking water and about like 270 billion for wastewater, I think that kind of funding can only come from the federal government. And we do have a a Water Infrastructure Financing Act, but that hasn't even covered like half of what we even need over the next 25 years. So those are the, the... things that I think that need to to change. Um, mm. It's really, I, I believe that it's the responsibility of the government to make these, these massive changes. And also local governments and utilities, I believe, need to start being a little bit more politically savvier and better at communicating the need to fund water with policymakers as well as customers. Because if you can get your people to care about water, then they're going to put the pressure on 
um, you know, the estate representatives to make water a priority. Mm. How can we, obviously we're talking about the states here, but I think water is pretty much an issue in most countries in the world now, um, especially with just growing populations. So is there anything that we can do as individuals, apart from just kind of conserving our water, but to try and bring about policy change, whether it's, I don't know, supporting specific organisations or charities, or is there anything else we can do to, to kind of push things forward? One thing that we can definitely do is just start educating ourselves about what's in our water. So here in the US, every year, our utilities are required to send us water reports. Most people will get that piece of paper or pieces of paper and just dump it or recycle it. But nobody takes the time to actually know what is in those water reports, which mm. basically show what the utilities test for in the water, the contaminants that are found, etc. Just empowering yourself with that information, then, you know, go to your utilities website and start educating yourself about what they actually do. Educate yourself on what your bill is actually paying towards. We do all of these things kind of just, you know, blindly or just, I guess, on auto mode because we have too many other things to worry about. But water, I believe, is something that we should be worrying about. The other part that we can do apart from like, you know, conserving water or whatever it may be is to talk to your city council members about what they're doing to make water infrastructure improvements and water infrastructure financing a priority in their decision making processes. City council members are are easier to reach. And so that's something that I guess would be like a first few steps. And of course, you know, using your vote to vote for improvement of water and wastewater infrastructure in your communities that's really important and for some reason <laughs> you know having worked with various water and wastewater utilities around the country utilities are just terrified and also just often banging their heads on the wall as to like why communities are against paying for water I've been to so many city council meetings where you have people going through like line by line budget line items of like, what is this? What is that? And yes, that's your right. You can totally ask that. But the approach that I guess most Americans come with is just there's this deep distrust towards the government and, you know, utilities really need to work on on building that trust. And one of the ways to do that is through education and engagement and being front of mind or top of mind, being present within a community so that when we're asking for a water rate increase, we're not coming out of like this hole and we're like, hey, your water rates are going to go up by 20%. And then people are just like, what? Where's this coming from? So that's what we really struggle with. Yeah, I feel like water should be something that's taught from school age really because often when you rent a place I think in New Zealand and in the UK you won't even have to pay a water bill it will just be kind of included in your rent so it's not even a bill like it's not even something that you think about and I only just realized that during our conversation I've never paid for water since I've lived here mm -hmm. it's just oh someone else takes care of that and I just don't think about it and so of course you're not going to put a value on something that you don't even pay for mm -hmm. or feel like you pay for I just wondered as well maybe I don't know if you know facts or figures but how much water do we do we waste well so when we talk about waste it's it's something very difficult to to quantify so we don't really know how much water we waste but we do know how much water we lose and we do know how much water we use mm. so that's how we think about i guess water waste here in the US so you know the overall system the water system which we have like over a million miles of pipeline in the US we lose at least 14 to 18% through leaks. That's almost, I think, 2 billion uh, gallons of water. I don't know if you all know gallons. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. um, I'm British, I use gallons. Okay, good. So <laughs> California uses cubic feet. I don't know why. But anyways, um, oh. so that's about like 2 trillion gallons of water. 
And then there's also water loss at the residential level. So leaking pipes, toilets, faucets, hoses, swimming pools, and so on. And we also look at, I guess, waste through current usage and how we can reduce that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So, for example, uh, with regards to residential conservation, approximately 70% of the water used is indoors. And most of that water is used in the bathroom. Specifically, the toilet alone can use 27%. Yeah. Flushing a toilet uses loads of water, doesn't it? It does. So my policy is if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Uh, I like it. to conserve water. (laughs) (laughs) So what I was saying is, you know, because toilets use so much water in the household, we try to promote this, I guess, this little poem. Because Mm. that's another weird thing is... We we use that principle in Nairobi because I said like we didn't have very much water, and here in the U.S. it's just flushing each time. Which I started to adopt that, but I was like, this is just really wasteful, and so I've gone back to my old ways. Um, I don't know if I overshared there, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Do you live with anyone? Do they mind? Um, no, I live with my husband, so. He doesn't mind. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I can see how if you're renting, it might be an issue. So yeah, we, when we think of waste, it's just from the perspective of how much does a specific appliance or a shower head use? And then how can we reduce that? So if we use a standard shower head, which uses 2.5 gallons per minute, then if we replace that shower head, then we can save the average family can save 2,900 gallons of water for like two weeks. Wow. And then same thing, another popular one is uh, the bathroom faucet, which generally runs two gallons per minute. And if we turn off the tap while we're brushing or shaving, then that alone can save 200 gallons of water per month. Okay. So I guess like that's by conserving, that's how much water we're probably wasting if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, because it's hard to work out. You don't know how much people are wasting because you're not in their houses. So yeah, yeah. and everyone has different habits of how they use water. Yeah, right. It's it's like you would need somebody to just like monitor a person <laughs> in their yeah. houses, just seeing how they're using water and calculating that if you could. But of course, we can start to do that with smart meters where you can see how much water is being used by the minute in a household. Uh, But you can't tell where exactly the water is being used. You can just see overall usage. Okay. Smart meters are great though, aren't they? Because it's a way to monitor your energy use, whether it is water or electricity or gas. Mm -hmm. If you can actually see it on a screen, then that's going to really help you to reduce it. Yes. And I think with the cities that I've worked with where they did install water meters, it was, or smart water meters, that helped significantly improve perceptions towards the utility in that they felt the utility was being more transparent by providing that data because utilities have that data anyways. It's just that they don't have uh, systems to to share that kind of data Yeah, in, in that kind of detail. Smart water meters are still fairly new, like 10 to 15 years in the U.S. So we're still waiting to see if it makes any significant impact from like a behavioral perspective. Um, We're seeing it, you know, in like in certain cases, just but not like on a large scale. What are your thoughts about the future in terms of, you know, the climate is warming So we're getting less rain, but the populations are growing. So what does that mean for for water, for for the globe? I mean, are you hopeful that things are progressing and are getting sorted out or is it actually looking really scary? Uh, It's looking quite scary because most of our water sources are already polluted. 
there are very few places in the world where water is pristine. So from, you know, with, with increase in population and then, you know, just mismanagement of our water resources, I think really compounds the, the issue. And, you know, with the floods and the the increasing frequency and intensity of floods and and droughts we're not we're not adapting we haven't adapted fast enough to these new i guess catastrophes where mm. okay if we're having a flood then we're able to actually capture that water so our systems are still like 100 years old they weren't built for what's happening to us today it's high time that we just completely revamped our entire systems so that we're able to capture water, we're able to retain it by reducing the amount of leaks we have within our system, and that we're able to make water conservation just a way of life. And there are cities or countries that have been able to do that, like Singapore is one example. And I don't want to say like population increase is adding to that pressure, but I really feel that there's a lot more impact that we can make just by implementing policies where we're improving our infrastructure. Mm. What about obviously if we conserve water or implement policies in in our own countries, it's not going to help the water system in developing countries. But we're seeing that droughts and, and the weather catastrophes are getting worse in, you know, places like India or in some African countries. What can we do to to help the water situation over there? Is there any way that we can support that? Yeah, so I guess from a grassroots perspective, you can find organisations that are committed to providing clean drinking water to communities in these countries. From, I guess, a bigger picture, I would like to see, you know, sharing of technologies with African, Asian countries or countries that need that kind of water technology. So yeah, it's it can go, you know, from a grassroots and then also from like a technological transfer perspective as well or approach. Yeah, Are there any kind of organizations or charities that you think are the good ones to support in terms of water? I I struggle with that because the ones that I do know are either run by, what's his name? The actor, (laughs) Matt... Matt Damon? Matt Damon, (laughs) yes. Is it? (laughs) Yes. Matt Damon runs a water water charity? Yes, it's called awater.org, I believe. Okay. Oh, and does he get paid loads of money for it? No, I mean, it's really a good organization, but, you know, they have a lot of money anyways. I would, like, for me typically is I would look for local institutions or local organizations that are actually... On the ground. ...coming up with the solutions, yes. I am less inclined to support the Western-based organizations. Okay, Yeah, I actually was looking up an organisation that I was going to donate to recently and I saw that the CEO was paid this huge six-figure sum Mm. and they were asking for, you know, a few pounds off each person and I was like, are you joking? I I don't want to give... I mean, I do want to support this, but if it's going into this guy's pocket, then, you know, I don't want to. So it's really hard to make that decision because, you know, I'd love to support a, a good water organization but yeah I don't want it going into the pockets of some CEO in America yeah and let me think about this some more because quite honestly because I've worked in the nonprofit world and I know how those budgets are designed <laughs> or structured I feel less willing to to give to those organizations a lot of it just goes to overhead and labor there are I've actually like found some like through articles that I've read in in of local organizations in Kenya that I I would be more inclined to to give to. Cool. All right. So yeah, I can send you some. Yeah, I'll send you and can include them in your show notes. Yeah, sounds good. Um I want to ask a really basic question. So <laughs> 
we're, we're talking about water. The ocean is made of water. There are rivers everywhere, but I know rivers get low when there are droughts. Why can't we just use ocean water? What, what's the problem with drinking that or with processing that to be able to drink it or use it? Sure. So it's funny that you asked that question because I did work with a company that was focused on promoting desalination technology. Mm. And they had quite a few desal plants in Ghana and the Middle East and even Chennai and India. And there and desalination. Desalitation, desalitation, desalination, desalination plant. Yeah, desalination. If you are British or you know speak British English, and then desalinization if you're American. Okay, cool. And that's when you process seawater. Yes. So basically, it it requires you pulling out the water from the ocean, and then it's taken through a, a reverse osmosis process, and this process is just, it's energy intensive, primarily because of all the energy it takes to, to pull out the water and then also processing it through reverse osmosis technology, which is just not sustainable, especially in developing nations where they may not have the energy grid to support that kind of energy consumption. And with that type of energy consumption, obviously, comes CO2 emissions. So on a large scale, it's just not sustainable over a long period of time. Mm. Because in some countries where they do have desalinization plants, they're not running throughout the year because they're so expensive. And I think that's the case in some plants, even in Australia. So it works for places like the Middle East and Israel, which have a lot of money and there really isn't any other viable option, but for the rest of the world, using ocean water through desalinization is extremely expensive. It's an expensive process. It takes up a lot of energy and therefore CO2 emissions and also through the reverse osmosis process. There are also environmental concerns that come with desalinization and with how to, specifically with how to safely dispose of chemicals used to clean the water. Um, Usually they're just dumped directly into the next, you know, the closest source of water or directly into the ocean. And then there's brine production that is basically a super saturated salt water. We haven't found a way to actually process it where it has less of an impact on the environment. So when they dump that brine into the ocean, then it immediately changes the salinity, which then causes a decrease in oxygen levels in the water, which then obviously impacts the ocean species that aren't able to adjust to that like massive change in salinity in the water. So that's my own personal perspective where I think that desalinization is not sustainable. Okay, interesting. That's good to know because I think sometimes, especially when you live like here on an island, uh, New Zealand, where there's just so much sea everywhere, you think, oh, come on, why can't we just use this? But I guess, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, it's it's extremely expensive too. Okay, not an option. Never mind. Um, Okay, so if somebody has listened to the podcast and um, we're near the end now and they're thinking, okay, I want to start valuing water a little bit more. I want to start conserving it a bit more. But usually they're kind of a, a usual uh, heavy water usage person. What, what do you think the first steps are or for that person that wants to just kind of change their ways in terms of how much water they use and, and maybe even um, take the next steps in terms of calling out policymakers as well? My suggestion from, from an individual level is start at home. Uh, something as simple as limiting the amount of times that you're flushing the toilet because that's where a lot of the water is wasted or lost. And then also being very mindful about how long you keep the faucet on when you're you know, brushing your teeth or when you're shaving. And then also just like how long your showers are taking. I got this little like sand timer thing (laughs) that um, has a little suction cup and I've stuck it on my bathroom tile and it's set for like five minutes. So that's kind of like the guidance on how long a sustainable shower is, five minutes. So those are the, the, 
I guess the, the three or four main things you can do is, you know, reducing the amount of flushes, reducing your shower time to five minutes if you can, and being very mindful about how long you keep the faucet open or on. And then as far as just going beyond that is really educating yourself about water in your local area and the value of it, whether it's, you know, for agriculture or if it's for even water recreation, but just even knowing where your water comes from and understanding the geography of how that water comes about, I think really helps add or broaden perspective. And how would you say the best way is to learn about that? Oh, I just Google that stuff or... I'll go to my city's website or the utility, the water utility website, and usually they'll have like basic information about water and where we get our water from. Cool. All right. Thank you. That's loads of really useful stuff. Is there anything else you wanted to add in before we kind of round it off? I guess the thing is just, I really hope that we can can see the importance of how water is integral to our very existence. I hope that we can see that all water in this world is connected, just like we are all connected to each other. And I hope that we can start taking even small steps to conserving the water, even when we don't need to, because there's definitely going to come a time that the water available that is consumable is limited. And within the water industry, at least we say water is the new gold, I guess, the new oil, because it's something that's it's going to become even more precious to our community's well-being more than, more than we know. And just really educate yourself about water issues locally and also globally, because I think it's, it's just really sad that we don't know enough, like, this kind of basic education or information is is not so obvious or available to to all of us, even though we're, I think we're 90% water, if I'm not wrong. Mm. I, I really hope that this conversation inspires you to just go beyond yourself and start asking yourself these questions about what does what does water mean to me and to my community and to communities beyond myself. And thank you so much for, for giving me an opportunity to to ramble on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. You didn't ramble at all. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's really interesting conversation. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. And just lastly, if somebody wants to find out more about you and what you do, do you want to just let us know where we can head to? Sure. So my uh, business website is called uh, watersavvysolutions.com. And it's spelled W-A-T-E-R-S-A-V-V-Y-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot com. And that's where you can also find my podcast, which is Breaking Green Ceilings. You can follow me or the podcast on Instagram, which is at Breaking underscore Green underscore Ceilings. Uh, we're on Twitter at Sapna Mulki. Uh, we're also on Facebook at Breaking Green Ceilings. And a lot of our conversations happen on Twitter and Instagram. So cool. Thank you so much. I'm going to go and have a very short shower now. Okay. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Don't flush <Thanks>. the toilet. <laughs> oh, yeah, I won't. Don't worry. Unless necessary. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sapna Mulkey. A great conversation and something we definitely all need to be thinking about a lot more. So, as usual, let's just do a little recap of some of the points that we covered and some of the advice and tips that Sapna gave. My favourite one, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. No more needs to be said. Uh, have shorter showers, of course. She said also turn off the tap or faucet when brushing your teeth. Get a smart meter if you can. You can get them for your electricity, your gas as well, I think. But you can also get them for your water, which is a really great way of monitoring how much water you're using or wasting. Check for leaks. The stats that Sapna told us about how much water is leaking through pipes is shocking. Um, so, yeah, if you can, just check for any leaks around your home or at your work more importantly maybe 
engage with your local water policy. So research and read about what's going on in your area. Uh, even speak to local councillors. Find out what is actually going into your water. Think about how important water is to you and your family, but also to others and their families. Use your vote. Vote for improvement of water infrastructure in your community, which again comes down to kind of researching what is available and what's going on. And then you can make a really thought out decision about how to use your vote. Support some water organisations who are actually on the ground helping to improve clean water access. And Sapna has sent a selection through, so you can find those in the show notes for this episode. And lastly, listen to Breaking Green Ceilings, of course, a brilliant podcast hosted by my guest, Sapna Mulkey. Thank you so much to her for giving her time to us today. I think that we've got lots of really actually useful, practical tips that we can all start using straight away. I know that I'm going to be trying to have shorter showers, even though it's freezing cold outside at the moment. I'm going to try. Um, And just turning off the tap where you can, it's so surprising how much water we're wasting. If you want to find out more about Sapna, as I said, Breaking Green Ceilings is a podcast. You can find that on Instagram and Twitter, or you can head over to watersavvysolutions.com. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking to Joyce Van Dam from Farm in My Flat. She's going to be giving us a bunch of tips and advice on how to grow our own produce inside a flat in an apartment. So if you really want to grow your own fruit and vegetables, but you don't have a garden, you don't even maybe have a balcony, it doesn't mean you can't do it. So I'm really looking forward to that one. But thank you for now for listening and I'll see you next time.